Um, but Jesus has shared this meal with his disciples, and then he goes into some of the deepest uh, instruction that he has given them up to this point. And then, of course, over the past three weeks, we covered this phenomenal prayer, this prayer that he prays for himself, he prays for his, his disciples, and prays for the followers who will come to know him. And then he goes from that to what I would call today uh, mayhem and majesty. And I know many of you may not use the word mayhem a lot, but this probably will help remind you. I think I got a couple clips to talk about mayhem. I'm your cat. And ever since you brought me home that day, well, I've been plotting to destroy you, sizing you up, calculating your every move. You think this is love? This is a billion years of tiger DNA just ready to pounce. And if you got the wrong home insurance coverage, you could be coughing up the cash for this. So get all state and be better protected from mayhem, like meow. <laughs> I'm some guy you just met. You listed this midlife crisis on the internet, and three emails later, you trusted me with a test drive. I love that kid. How hard can this be? And if you don't have the right motorcycle insurance, you could be fixing this bike yourself. So get all state. You can save money and be better protected from mayhem. Like me. Mayhem is everywhere. So perhaps Allstate did redefine the word mayhem. And we laugh at mayhem and the destruction that he causes. I'm not sure that the congressmen and women uh, were laughing yesterday when one of their own pulled the fire alarm in the Cannon building, if you saw that on the news. Uh, and only reason, because I had, this morning, I had searched mayhem, and someone said there was mayhem there. Um, maybe he was, whoever pulled it, maybe he or she was uh, suggesting that the budget was on fire or time to light a fire and maybe just disrupt what was going on. But mayhem, actually, in fact, I was quizzing my mother and sister on the way here, and I, well, how do you define mayhem? And I think my sister used the same word I do, chaos. I, I thought chaos. But then when I looked at the more literal translation, it, it typically has to do with in, intent to cause bodily harm to another, to sever a limb or perhaps an ear. Peter would do just that today, and he would be guilty of mayhem in the garden. And I guarantee you there was plenty of chaos going on when Jesus says, I am, and a tenth of a Roman legion falls down. Let's look at this passage that it's familiar to many of you, but um, I'll try to point out a couple of unique things in it, if at all possible, because I know we have read this countless times. Chapter 18, verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Jesus came to the grove, guiding Excuse me. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment 
of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. And most English translations will say, I am he. The he is actually implied, for all he says is, I am. And Judas the traitor, who was standing there with them, and when Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Verse 7. Again he asked them, Who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I wonder if they said it a little less boldly at that point. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered, or just I am. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. And talking of his other disciples or perhaps other followers that might have been with him. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. The servant's name, and I asked the deacons in my office this morning, and I brain-locked. I tried to combine the high priest's name with the servant's name. Malchus is his name. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? All right, so as we look at this text, it is the afternoon. You know, you know what happened at the Passover, right? We talked about this weeks ago or months ago. And the whole idea of setting the timing of when the Passover was. And you know the procedure that lambs would be sacrificed for the people. The priests would have been busy on that Thursday. This is Thursday night. They'd been busy sacrificing lambs, preparing the Passover. Josephus, in one of the historical records of Jesus' time, he is a Jewish historian that, not a Christian, but does document Christ's resurrection. You know, it, so a lot of uh, biblical commentators will rely on Ju Josephus. He said that there was an estimated 250,000 lambs sacrificed on the day before Passover. 250,000. Now, I did not take, I was not in Future Farmers of America. I know some of you out there have piglets or pigs you take care of over at O'Connor or other things. But I'm guessing if there was at least two liters of blood in one lamb, my quick summarization would make it somewhere around 130,000 gallons of blood. So why do I tell you that? Because I stumbled on another commentary this week. Actually, a preacher had said it. I have to give always, you know, I, I don't claim to be original. I claim to read things and listen to things, and that'll draw upon that. One preacher had said something about all that blood, and I thought, well, where did he get that? I don't think it's in my Broadman's commentary, which is probably one of the weaker commentaries I own. No disrespect to any of you who own Broadman commentaries, but there are a lot uh, more uh, expansive ones than those. But... There is a reference in an older commentary that this blood from this elevated temple, this altar area where they would be sacrificed, had to flow somewhere. So there was conduit, if you will, gutters, if you will, sewage, if you will, lines that ran down to the Kidron River. And the word Kidron means black, dark, or sad. 
So you think of all the water, all the blood that was used in the sacrifices, the washing and cleansing, and all those gallons upon gallons rowing down into that river. Jesus walked through that area, seeing the blood of lambs being sacrificed, knowing that he came to be the perfect sacrifice. And those of you who are better Bible scholars than I am, you might know the word or the phrase of the Kidron Valley. That was where David went to when his own son sought to overthrow him and his trusted advisor betrayed him. And if you remember any of that from 2 Samuel, I think that's 15, 16, and 17. And I always glitch on these guys' names too. Absalom is the son. He's the one who has the wonderful hair, right? They talked about his hair that was so nice, so nice, that when they cut it once a year, it was like six pounds worth of hair. I don't know if I had six pounds of hair in the past six years, you know, anymore. <laughs> but he wanted his father's throne, and, and the other guy's name, help me, it's, I've got it in here. I'm trying. It has like a tithel in it. Hang on, let me give it to you exactly. I have. Well, actually, I didn't write it down. I think I have to look it up. I think it's a thithophel. That's it. A thithophel. That's hard for me to say. I bet easier for you to say. A thithophel. A T H I like P H E L. He's a trusted advisor. He has helped the boy over try to overthrow the dad. And because of that betrayal, David is trying to escape, and he goes through the Kidron Valley. Jesus is often referred to as the second Adam, the second David. He is, obviously, there's all this connection, this deep heritage of what's going on. And Jesus goes to his favorite place, Gethsemane. It means wine press, or not wine press, it means press. There was an olive grove that grew there and they would take the olives and press them and extract the oil from them that was used for lamps it was used for cooking you can imagine all the things you use olive oil for now some of you like just rub it on your body I don't <laughs> sunbathers you know what I'm talking about you want to burn but there Jesus goes to his place of comfort and how much more painful it is to have one of his own come to his place of comfort to betray him it was in a garden that life began, Garden of Eden. And it was in that same garden that there would be disobedience and sin would enter the world. And here we come to another garden. And there, the one who would die for our sin to create in us a new life goes on. It ushers in a whole relationship we would have and understand who Jesus is. So... All that said, some of you I've already lost, some of you are already dozing after the you know, oil, the olive oil thing. You're thinking about food and could you cook popcorn in that? No, uh, I've tried. It burns really bad. Go to this next slide. This is a comparison that I did because I read all week, you know, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, those are the synoptics. Those are the three, often commentators will say that Mark is the first, the other two expanded on him. Mark is the most succinct, and I, I go over these with you. But each one of those have something unique in it, and that's what I pulled out. In Matthew, Jesus scolds the disciple who had tried to strike or who swings at the uh, high priest's servant's ear. He says, don't you know, don't you know that I could have asked my father and he would have sent 12 legions of angels and protected me. I think that's pretty powerful to not be in the other three. The second one in Mark, which is the short one, 
There's a naked man in the garden. Somebody was streaking. I know some of you, Josh, were talking, Ray Stevens, yeah. There's some streaking going on. Actually, he had, it was supposedly wrapped in his, maybe his night clothes, and it got hung on something. Somebody stepped on it, and he ran out of his clothes. And that's probably John Mark. Many think it is a reference that Mark, the writer, was calling out himself that he was there personally. Hard for me to prove, but that is the commentary version. Uh, I, I understand why the other three didn't include that one. Luke is the only one, and is Luke, who is the doctor in the Gospels? Luke. Luke is the only one that mentions Jesus healed the servant's ear. Remember that. And then finally, as you look at the unique stuff of John, here's all the unique statements of John. Uh, King James may use the word cohort. Is that anybody holding a King James? You still got your finger on your Bible? But that is the word in the Greek. It is a cohort, which is a tenth of a Roman legion. A tenth of a Roman legion. About 400 to 480 soldiers came out. Also unique to John are all the I am statements. He is reminding everybody, because John has been so good at saying, I am the, the way, the truth, the life. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. He has told you all these I, I am statements, making a connection. I am God incarnate in the body of man of Jesus. It's also John that mentions who did the swinging of the sword. Peter. It's the only one. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is finally the one who names who did the, the cutting. Also, it's the only one that has Malchus's name mentioned, that, that servant or that slave. And he is the only one who doesn't say there was a kiss. That's how Judas was to, to signal to those coming, it's the one I kiss. It's implied and I'm not going to build a whole sermon on why he didn't kiss him. But one commentator I read this week, I thought it was really interesting. He said he could not and would not have turned away. The last touch of human kindness, a kiss, before he's beaten and crucified, he still loved his follower Judas and let him kiss him. So, all that. And rather than preach a sermon on betrayal, which... Uh, I know that that's where most of us would think the context of this sermon is. I want us just to pick up on two unique points I found in the text. And the first one is Malchus moments. Malchus moments. He was this servant. Doulos is the Greek word, means slave, of the high priest Caiaphas. That was the high priest that year. He's mentioned in the next few verses. And only in John's account is he named. And as I mentioned earlier, only in Luke is it said that Jesus heals Malchus's ear. But can you imagine the report that Malchus had when he went back to Caiaphas? Caiaphas asked, how did it go? Did you get him? Yes, sir. We got him. Was there any trouble? Not really, sir. He just surrendered. Well, why are you covered in blood? Well, he, he had one of his guys cut my ear off. Cut your ear off? And there's a lot of commentary. Seriously, when you look at this, it's his, which ear is it that he cuts? Right ear. Everybody talks about the right ear. And then I started doing a Van Gogh thing this week, and there was no connection. I was really disappointed. I thought Van Gogh did it because of that. I didn't, that was wrong. But he cuts the right ear. Most men of the day were right-handed. You're thinking about swinging, and I keep thinking, was he a bad swordsman? I mean, did he lean and, and make a slice? Because any kind of down strike would have caught his collarbone and probably hurt him pretty bad. And 
Saul and I are talking yesterday. We were all on this side. You're grinding the machete. That is the Greek word. It's an is, is a earlier version of that. It's like machera, o. It has an O on the end. But he probably had just a very small knife. It wasn't a sword. The machete, he had a pretty big machete yesterday swinging. And he swung at it and caught his ear. And then Caiaphas would say, well, I don't see anything wrong with your ear. Well, sir, he, he healed me. And sir... Thinking about that, do you think we got the right man? Is he really as bad as you think he is? Is he really, you know, Satan? He sure seemed to be pretty nice. Well, if you think about it and ponder, Malchus, I think that every person here can, if they will look in their lives, find the Malchus ear moment. Now, you may still have both of your ears. But there are scars that we each carry. There are restoration moments, moments of healing, moments of protection, moments of deliverance that Jesus did for us, that God allowed us to be redeemed, saved, brought back from the brink of whatever. And so many times, we won't share those Malchus moments. Nobody would expect a sermon from Jesus every day in the temple for the high priest to have to look at and think about when he saw Malchus. From that night forward, each time that boy walked into the room, he knew he had obviously crucified the wrong man. Consider this. If you are lost and without Christ, somewhere in your life, something as obviously and perhaps inescapable is where you are right now. When you stand before the Lord God Almighty, it will come to your forefront of your mind. And you say, what are you talking about, Cliff? Well, if you were standing before God and you have never come to acknowledge his son, I believe that when you're standing in front of him, you will think of all the times when people tried to tell you about Jesus. All the times where somebody invited you to church. Maybe it was your mom dragging you and you went kicking and screaming the whole way. Maybe it was your spouse begging you to go and sit with her on the pew. Maybe it was an old deacon who liked to give you pennies that had the cross cut out of them. Because he'd give them to anybody. Maybe it was just somebody buying your tank full of gas at the gas station. And when you tried to say, I, thank you, they said, well, that, that's what Jesus would do. Those little elements that would come to the front of your mind. And you realize there was my Malchus moment. And I didn't even follow through on what God was trying to do for me. Maybe it's time we proclaim our Malchus moments. Remember the famous scene in Jaws? I think I've used it before. I love Jaws. I, I, I went to Jaws. It came out in 1976. I'm pretty sure I'm already out of high school by that. I, I graduated in 76. I'm pretty sure it came out in my little area that summer. And I drove home in my friend's car. It was a double date, but it was the foggiest night. I mean, I was like I was in London. I mean, it was thick fog and you were already kind of scared. You knew there wasn't any water around where I was, but I, I prayed I didn't fall into a ditch because there's got to be a shark in there. But you remember the scene where they're all sitting in there talking about their scars? Remember that? 
I got this from an eel. I got this from a tiger shark. And Richard Dreyfuss's character starts unbuttoning his shirt, and he has one of these, you know, like carpet chests, you know, just full of hair. And, and I think uh, the one guy uh, asked him, what is that, a, a sweater? <laughs> he says, no, no. And he's trying to point to him. He said, it's a broken heart. You have showed all their scars, and they kind of laugh. It's a broken heart. Mary Ellen Moffat broke my heart. There are times when you will have heartbreaks in this world. A neighbor doesn't do you right. Your child, your spouse, your parent, someone breaks your heart. But the Malchus moment is that God will restore it. God will heal it. God will transform it. God will bring his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy into your life. And if you'll only proclaim those Malchus moments... How many people might come to know him too? The second unique point, and I am getting close to the end of my time, I will try to be quick, is Christ's confidence. That's the one thing that just leaps off the page to me. Here is a group of the religious leaders, I mean the top dogs of the day. They've sent the Southern Baptist Convention out to get me, you know, if you're going to put, or to get you. I won't, it sounds like I'm Jesus. No. He, they've sent the top leaders of the day and a small detachment of men, about 400, like I said, 400 to 500 armed. It says they had weapons. I don't think they had pots and pans and sticks. They had probably more than machetes. I mean, they probably had the full up thing, shields and all that. And when they said who they're looking for and Jesus says, I am, they don't just step back. The Greek word is they fell on the ground. Wouldn't they took a knee? Wouldn't that they bowed? They fell back. Like a bowling ball hitting a pin. Bam. They're out. And as they try to regroup themselves and try to, you know, well, remember, we're all Roman soldiers. Remember, religious leaders of the day. And this guy, all he said is, I am, and we don't believe that anyway. They ask him again, or they, he says, who are you looking for? And he says, well, we're looking for Jesus. And he says, I am. I am he. Despite all that, he keeps his cool. Look at verses 8 and 9. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. And if you're looking for me, then let these men go. So in the midst of this mayhem, he's still worried about those who would follow him. He said, let this happen so that the words he had spoken would, not, would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. I came across this survey. I love surveys. In 1950, Gallup Poll surveyed high school seniors and asked them the question, are you a very important person? 1950, even before I was born. In 1950, 12% of high school seniors said, yes, I am an important person. Asked the same question to high school seniors in 2005. Now, that's still 18 years ago, 2005. 80% said, yes, I am an important person. Now, I understand there's a lot, we need to have good, strong self-esteem. But where I made the connection was, there was a coincidence in the 1950s, 80% of those surveyed were confident and trusting in the Christian church. 2023 numbers have just been released and it's down to 32%. So it's as if as our confidence goes up in ourselves, our confidence declines in who Christ has called us to be. 
Here's a passage for you that most of you probably memorized at some point. Proverbs 3, I think that's 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. Jesus was confident because of who he was. We must have that same confidence in him because of who he is. We must trust him. We must let him guide our paths, for he is the great I am. And if you trust in the great I am, the mayhem of your life will reveal the majesty of the Messiah. Stand with me, please, we pray. Our Father, as we have looked briefly at this section, and I know there's far more. Perhaps there's someone here today, though, that has... Uh, trusted in themselves and they've found themselves wanting. Maybe they've trusted in another and that relationship has failed. Perhaps they've trusted in wealth and they've seen that at risk. Maybe they've trusted in health and they've seen that decline. Lord, we must trust in you and you alone. For you are the one who brings salvation. You are the one who brings forgiveness. You are the one who will grant us eternal life if we'll only choose to believe in your son. Oh, yes, we'll still have difficulty day, difficult days. Yeah, we'll still have struggles and problems, and we'll have the scars of this world. But if we live long enough by following you, those scars become the Malchus moments in our life that we can proclaim the good news of how Christ brought us through a difficult time. So now as we have this time of invitation, if there's one here who wants to come to this altar just to bow and pray, we have folks that will pray with them. Perhaps they want to come and just say, I need help and I want Jesus in my life. And Lord will gladly pray with them. Whatever decision, let your spirit move in a mighty way for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.